As we come to our time in the Word of God this morning, I'll ask you to open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, probably one of the, at least for me, one of the most exciting chapters of all the Scripture as it introduces us to what is probably the greatest treatise on salvation that the Scriptures have. The words of the Apostle Paul to the believers in Rome. I remember last Lord's Day I said this was a book written to believers. Paul is writing to the saints, he says. As we began to study last Lord's Day, we began to pull out from our text several motivators for us as we walk down this Life called the Christian life. This road called Christianity. I've been telling us that we are at war for the gospel. We're at war for what is true and what is not true. It may seem even strange to some of us to think of the Christian life in those terms in the terms of it being a war. But that is, in reality, what it is. And we are at war within that for the gospel. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is under attack on numerous fronts in the secular world in which we are called as sojourners for a time. And as Christians, we should not be surprised that the world itself denies the truth. We should not be surprised that the world attacks the truth today under the guise of what, at least in the most recent times, is the postmodern thought that they've labeled as tolerance. The gospel is attacked under that title. In other words, this new gospel of the secular world called tolerance is the word that they use. And if anyone comes along and says that anyone else is wrong in thinking a certain way that might be concerning how someone can have a relationship unto eternal life with God, if you you say that someone else is wrong in how they're thinking about that, then the person is labeled as intolerant. In fact, even hostile to the underlying attempt at some kind of superficial unity among people. The world tells us that everyone's religion and way to God, whatever that God might be in your own mind, that it is just as realistic and true as the next person. It is just as valid That every road leads to the same place. And the standard by which it is to be judged as to whether it is true or not is simply this. If it works for you, and in the end, if it makes you feel better about yourself, then that's as good as it needs to be. As long as you feel good about who you are, then God will accept you. Just feel good about yourself. In fact, you can't even love others until you love yourself first. 
feel good about yourself because after all, God is a loving God. That kind of thinking, that kind of philosophy is an outright false gospel. It's a lie. It's a gospel by name only, but it is not good news at all. Because God is not just love, but He is also the judge of the universe. And in fact, we cannot even really understand His love until we understand His judgment and justice. Every characteristic, every attribute of God stands in perfect balance with every other attribute of God. And therefore, to see one attribute above and beyond all the rest is to actually have a God of your own making. This is the God of the world. He is a God of their own making. In fact, in chapter 1, we're not going to get into it today, but in chapter 1, they invent gods. They create their own gods. In fact, they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of something corruptible. The Apostle John said in 1 John chapter 3, verse 13, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Why would John say that to a Christian? Why would John say that to us as Christians? Because those who truly know Christ are, by their very new nature and their very new life, they are at immediate odds with any gospel that does not reflect the true gospel. Just by virtue of our attachment with, by virtue of our being enveloped under the righteousness of Christ, we are immediately, as Christians, at odds with anything that is unchristian, with anything that is ungospel. And because of that, the world will and the world does hate you. You, as a Christian, are a hated person. That is one of the fronts that we have in this battle for the gospel, this gospel of tolerance. But there's another front that's even more dangerous. It's even more tenacious in its attacks. And the front that I'm talking about is the current state of the evangelical church at large. It's bad enough to have the enemy attacking from outside. It's bad enough for us as Christians within the church to have the enemy outside the church, those who do not know God, those who reject God, those who invent other gods as their own God, to be attacking and hate us. But it's even worse when the attacks are coming from inside evangelicalism. As frightening as that may be and as deadly as it is for all of us, it should not even surprise us that that is taking place. Because that too is not a new front. In fact, just a few short years after the beginning of the church in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul gives a farewell message in Ephesians chapter 20 to the church in Ephesus. The church he had spent three years teaching. 
And he says this to them. Now this is just a few short years after the beginning of the church. Here's what he says to them, beginning in verse 24. I do not consider myself of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. And what was that ministry? To testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Why? Because I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. So be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. Why? Because I know that after my departure, Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, Paul says, be on the alert. A few short years after the beginning of the church, there is a necessity and a need by Paul to warn the church about this front. But this is not simply a warning for just them. This is a warning for all of us. To all who call upon the name of the Lord, to all who actually are believers in Jesus Christ, Paul is saying, watch out. Better watch out. Don't put your weapon down. Don't take your flak vest off. Don't put your helmet on the ground. Watch out because you're going to get shot. Satan is just waiting to devour somebody. And what better way for him to accomplish that very purpose than for those who claim to know Jesus Christ as their Savior to let down their guard for the sake of some kind of superficial peace simply because the war is hot, the road seems so lonely. So it's not just the true Christian in battle with the false gospel of the world. It's also the false gospel that has crept into the church that is even more dangerous. One prominent Christian pastor rightly said this in his observation of this reality. He said, quote, Why do evangelicals try so desperately to court the world's favor. Churches plan their worship services to cater to the unchurched. Christian performers copy every worldly fad in music and entertainment. Preachers are terrified that the offense of the gospel might turn someone against them, so they deliberately omit the parts of the message the world might not like. Evangelicalism seems to have been hijacked by legions of carnal spin doctors who who are trying their best to convince the world that the church can be just as inclusive, just as pluralistic and broad-minded as the most politically correct worldling. The quest for the world's approval is nothing less than spiritual harlotry, unquote. He's right. And it's this that was warned about by the Apostle Paul. 
It's this which has in fact taken place. Savage wolves have come in speaking perverse things and drawing away disciples. They pander to another gospel that is not a true gospel at all. And in the heat of it all, people like you and I who are fighting on the front lines of the gospel each and every day in that war, it can seem very, very lonely when you're battling. So what is it that God uses? What is it that God does to motivate us in this war for the gospel? What what should motivate us in this war for the gospel? Well, I submit to you this morning that what should motivate us is the same thing that motivated the Apostle Paul. And I began to list for us last week these motivations. The first motivation was simply this, the motivation of thankful pleasure. You remember back in Romans chapter 1 and verse 8, the Apostle Paul shares it with us. Not the pleasure uh, of the things of the world, not, not having the worldly goods and the pleasures of the world and nice vacations and all of those kinds of things. No, the pleasure of knowing that others are fighting with you. That others are hearing of your faith and just your faith continuing encourages them to continue to fight within their faith. Notice what he says. First, I thank my God, beginning in verse 8, through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. You see, Paul says it's a motivation for me to continue on because I hear of your faith continuing on. And that ought to motivate us. When we continue to fight, others are motivated to continue to fight. And when we hear of them fighting, it should motivate us to continue to fight in this war for the gospel and to keeping the truth the truth. It's a motivation for us. It's a thankful pleasure we take in knowing that others are fighting in the war as well. And I gave us a second motivation, and that was the motivation of prayer. Prayer. Paul said in verses 9 through the first part of verse 10, For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers. We always learned in grammar, don't use a double negative, right? Don't say two negatives together. Paul uses two positives together, right? I I unceasingly make mention of you always. I'm, 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 I'm always unceasingly mentioning you. It's almost as if Paul is saying, I never stop. I never stop praying for you. Paul is praying for them constantly before God that they would be strengthened in the fight, knowing that is a motivation. None of us could stand on our own strength. None of us could continue to go and fight before the Lord on behalf of one another without prayer. Prayer motivates us to continue and go. Proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the truth. Stand strong. And then Paul gives a third one, and that was simply petition, the other side of prayer. And you notice in verses 10 through 13, here's what he says. I'm making requests. That's petition. 
I'm making a request. Here's what I, I, I'm unceasingly mentioning you in my prayers. I'm thankful for you, but here's what I'm asking God. If perhaps now at last by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you because I long to see you in order that I can impart some spiritual gift to you that you might be established. That is, here's the establishment that I might be encouraged together with you while we're together each by the other's faith. And I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that I've oftentimes planned to come to you in order that I might obtain some fruit among you, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. You say, why is that a motivator for Paul? Because not only is it motivating to know that others are praying for you, but it even heightens the motivation to know that others are simply praying that God would change their circumstances in such a way that they would be right there personally, physically with you in the battle. Paul said, I want God to put me on the front lines where you are. I want God to make it so that I'm fighting with you right there arm in arm. Sometimes that's what keeps us going. The knowledge that reinforcements are on the way. There are others petitioning God that they would come and be right there with them. It's always encouraging when you're in your workplace, you get to know somebody in your workplace, find out, hey, they're a Christian. Now you don't feel like you're the only Christian there. Now there's a banded front together, both of you spreading the truth of the gospel. I have the opportunity to talk to our missionaries from time to time, and it's always their desire that we would pray that God would send someone to help them. You ever pray like that? You ever pray for our missionaries like that, the ones that we've sent out from here? Do you ever pray, God, send me... Send, don't, Lord, I want you to take care of Ed and Maria, but do you ever say, Lord, and make it such a way that maybe I could go and be right there with them? Battle with them. I wonder what would happen with Ed and Maria in their heart or Steve and Becky in their heart if you called them one day and said, I'm praying that God would do this. Do you think they'd be motivated? think they'd be a little more motivated in the war? I do. Paul gave us a fourth, and that was the motivator of payment. Payment, verse 14 and 15, I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul says, what motivates me is an obligation to others. What keeps me going in this war is knowing that others, I have an obligation that others would hear the gospel. My motivation to continue is not for me. It's not because this ministry that I'm in or this Christian life that I'm in is some kind of uh, worldly attractiveness to it. No, the reason is because I have a stewardship over what God has given me by means of the gospel. I have a salvation in Christ by faith through Christ and, and And the reality is I have an obligation because of that to give that to others and woe to me if I don't. Paul says it doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter how educated they are. It doesn't matter how uneducated they are. It doesn't matter what privilege they are under or how underprivileged they are. It doesn't matter. I have to give them the gospel of God. That's my task. I owe it to them. The payment I owe keeps me going in the war. Well, that brings us then to our fifth in this list that we left off from last time because I I felt it 
to be too much here to say in one time. And so I wanted to get back to this. And I think this is the most important of all. Because without the understanding of this one reality, this one motivator, the other motivators are just empty. There's no substance to them at all. The fifth motivator for us in this war is power. Power. You notice what Paul says in verses 16 and 17. You could actually say this is just the actual substance of everything he's going to say from verse 18 of chapter 1 all the way through verse, the last verse of chapter 16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it has been written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now these two verses are probably two of the most well-known verses in all of the Scriptures. And being so familiar sometimes can breed in us a contemptive nature toward it. Not in a contempt in the sense of hating what it says, but in a contempt in the sense of not even really thinking about what it says. Oftentimes we just read these verses and we might even quote them from memory. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And because of our familiarity with them, because we've read them so many times, because we've heard them so many times, because we've, we've had somebody say them so many times, the depth of what they are saying is just passed over. We don't spend any time to really think about it and analyze it for our own life. So I pray that after today, that will never happen again. Because these two verses contain the most life-transforming truth that has ever been given to mankind. Knowing just that ought to motivate us to continue, shouldn't it? I mean, if we just stopped right there, closed our Bible and prayed and said, that this is the most motivating, this is the most wonderful truth mankind has ever known, that alone should cause us to spend some time thinking about it. You notice what Paul says first. I am not ashamed of the gospel. These words have been ringing in my head for a week now. I am not ashamed of the gospel. How tragic it is if Paul did not put the word not there. If this text said, I am ashamed of the gospel. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This is a remarkable statement in light of the fact of what Paul endured in his life. I mean, as we know, he was imprisoned several times. How many of us have been imprisoned because of the gospel? Nobody. Paul, several times. I preached the gospel, I went to jail. I was let out, I preached the gospel, I went to jail. I was let out again, I preached the gospel, I went to jail. This time, 
I'm not going to get out of jail. In fact, I'm going to die because of it. He was physically chased out of city after city. In Acts chapter 17, when he preached in Athens, the, the, the most vibrant city of the time in that day, guess what they did? They laughed at him. Who is this babbler, they said? In Corinth, Paul was considered by most to be simply a fool. Who would believe these things? Even those of his own previous spiritual heritage, the Jews considered him to be a breaker of the Jewish law, a blasphemer. If that wasn't enough, he was beaten with rods, nearly to death a few times, left for the dead. He was stoned. Why? He preached the gospel. He told somebody about Jesus Christ. He told them that their way of knowing God wasn't helpful. Even those who knew Him best wanted nothing to do with Him. He was left alone even by those who feigned profession as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And now Paul wants to go and preach in the pagan capital of the world. I'm eager, he says, to do that. And yet here, in verse 16, he says, because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Even though the gospel which he preached was a stumbling block to the Jews, it was considered foolishness to the Gentiles, as Randy even reminded us of this morning, the cross is just that foolishness to the Gentiles. None of that deterred Paul. None of that mattered to Paul. He didn't care if he was laughed at. He didn't care if he was chased out of the city. He didn't care if he was jailed because of it. He he didn't care about any of that. Why? Because he was not ashamed of the gospel. I find that refreshingly amazing, don't you? It's refreshing because... I find it to be so difficult or or so different, I should say, of the attitude and of the actions of so many professing Christians today and sometimes to my own shame, that very reality. You see, we know that to deny Christ is a serious sin. Mark chapter 8, verse 38, if you deny me before men, I, Jesus says, will deny you before my Father who is in heaven. It doesn't matter if it's in overt ways. It doesn't matter if it's in covert ways. It's still a denial of Jesus Christ. And yet, so often we find ourselves doing that. We find ourselves actually, in reality, in action, ashamed of the gospel. We have the opportunity to speak out for Christ, and we do not. Why? Simply because we know that the gospel is not the most attractive words, at least by a worldly standard, at least by how the world defines things. It is not attractive news for men to hear. 
We know that it's threatening. To the natural man, it's even revolting. We know that. We know that it's going to lay the axe at the base of the tree of their religious system. It's going to stand against it. We know that the gospel of God will shine brightly, the light of truth with the intent of fully exposing their sin and wickedness. We know that. We know that it will declare that any works of righteousness which they believe they've done to gain favor with God to be totally worthless before Him. We know that. For those who are not saved, the gospel begins with the outright most shocking news of all. And when that is heard, the natural response is simply to hate it try to find ways around it to discredit it at all costs. It is for this reason that many a Christian are reluctant with the gospel. And in doing that, we are actually proving that we are ashamed of it. Ashamed. This is happening in the evangelical church at breakneck speed. There seems to be around every corner someone attempting to soften the shattering blow of the gospel. The attempt at making what God says less threatening, less revolting. And it has swept through the church. Over the last few decades, it has swept through the church in such a way that Many churches try to make it less offensive. Why? Because it offers the world what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. Sadly, what, is offer, what they're offering is a false gospel rather than the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're not offering, as Paul says, what the gospel is. This is the gospel of God. Verse 1. In fact, one popular pastor today, very popular in the bookstore, will tell you that if you are going to reach the lost for Jesus Christ with the gospel, then you will better adapt your message to fit what they want to hear. Here's what he says, unquote. You cannot start with the text. So he starts the sentence. You cannot start with the text. Excuse me? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Don't start with the Bible? Don't start with that. That's unhelpful. You cannot start with the text expecting the unchurched to be fascinated by it. You must capture their attention by some other means and then move them to the truth of God's Word. He said in in several pages before that, Quote, people's immediate needs are key to where God would have you to speak on that particular occasion, unquote. Really? That's a false gospel. That's a lie. That's assuming that you have the ability to save someone's soul. That's the kind of gospel that's being sold in our day. And it is against that kind of gospel that we are at war 
Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of God's gospel. A man named Jeffrey Wilson wrote some years ago on this issue, and he described it this way by saying, quote, the unpopularity of a crucified Christ has prompted many to present a message which is more palatable to the unbeliever. But the removal of the offense of the cross always renders the message ineffective. An inoffensive gospel is an inoperative gospel. Thus, Christianity is wounded most in the house of his friends, unquote. The Apostle Paul declares, I am not ashamed of the gospel. You know what the word ashamed means? You know what the idea is? Hesitate to preach. Hesitate to proclaim. I'm not hesitating in any kind of way to proclaim the truth of God. I did not hesitate to preach the gospel to you. It's the same thing he said to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. I did not hold back anything. I proclaimed to you the whole gospel, even though it was offensive, even though it was unattractive, even though you didn't like it at times, even though it was hard for you to hear, even though it seemed so strange to you. I did not Hesitate to proclaim that. Paul's passion wasn't for his own comfort. It wasn't for his own popularity. It wasn't for his own circle of friends to like him because his reputation in their sight was good. No, what Paul cared about most was the fact that men needed to be saved. That alone ought to be crushing to our heart. We care oftentimes so much more about our own reputation. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that. I I offered only what God had given to me, the unadulterated gospel, because there is nothing more powerful than the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. Do you realize that? Paul is saying, now listen carefully, what motivates me most Yeah, I I can think of my thankful pleasure in you. I can think of prayer. I can think of petition. I can think of all these things that help motivate me. But what motivates me most in this war is the fact that I have been entrusted with the most powerful weapon ever known for changing a life. The gospel is the power of God. Do you see that? The gospel is the power of God. The word in the original language is that word we all know, dunamis. Some people like to translate it dynamite and say it's the thing that blows people's lives apart. I don't like that. I think it's more more the idea of the word dynamic. Dynamic. The gospel is the very dynamic that completely changes a life. Why is that necessary? Because no man, no man ever created by God on this earth has any ability to change on his own. You do not come equipped with the power, with the saving dynamic for yourself. 
Jeremiah asked the question this way, can in the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? They can, can you also who do good, are you also accustomed to do evil? The answer is yes. When you do evil, you also do good, but you can't change yourself. You have no ability within yourself, no power, no dynamic within you to do that. It's not within us. It's not within us to have a saving dynamic within you. You cannot get there without God. Only the power of God is able to overcome your corrupt nature and bring you to salvation. That's why Paul said it. Listen, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I don't hesitate to preach the gospel because I don't have anything else to say. This is the power of God to salvation. I'm not going to preach to you the, some other gospel to you. I'm not going to tell you something that is unhelpful to you. Why? Because in spite of what you might think, it's the only thing that will be able to help you. It may not be what you want, but it certainly is what you need. Aren't you so glad the cancer doctor doesn't give you what you want? You who have suffered cancer and gone through chemotherapy and all those things that just ravage your body, aren't you glad in some kind of way that the cancer doctor just didn't give you what you wanted, the easy road that would not help your disease at all? No, you're glad he gave you what you needed. Paul is not ashamed. In fact, he is motivated to preach it even more because the gospel is the power of God to save. And so the necessary gospel that we need comes only through the preaching of it. How will they hear without a preacher? That's all of us. How will they hear without a proclaimer, without a caruso, someone who will herald the gospel? It comes, notice, through faith to everyone who believes. You see that? We're all saved the same way. You can't get saved another way. It's only through the gospel because that's the power of God to salvation. There is no other way. And everyone who believes it will be, in fact, saved. In other words, the dynamic of God that works through the gospel that brings salvation is faith. You have to believe. The word faith is used four times in just these two verses. You notice? Belief, verse 16 Verse 17, it's revealed from faith to faith. And then again, but the righteous man shall live by faith. You know what that means? Fully rely upon. Fully rely upon. Remember years ago, we used to play a little game with my kids. And I'd stand behind them and tell them, put their hands by their side and fall back into my hands. Trust me, I'll, I'll, I'll catch you. And inevitably, all of us, even if we stood up right now to do it, all of us would put one foot back. We'd say, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. But when we start falling, we'd put that one foot back. You know why? Because we just haven't fully relied upon the truth of that word. That's not faith. Faith is fully relying upon. Salvation comes not by reliance upon the words of the gospel, 
Salvation comes by reliance upon the one to which the gospel points. The object of God's gospel. Remember that back in verse 7, right? Or or back in, um, I'm sorry, verse 3, right? This is the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through the prophets, through the scriptures. Concerning who? His Son, This is good news concerning His Son. This is great news. This is the power of the Gospel is Jesus Christ. And we gain that through faith in Jesus Christ. You have to believe in the object of the Gospel. Jesus Christ, as 1 John says, the righteous. Salvation then is both attained and lived out by faith. We have salvation by faith and we live out our salvation by faith. It's a faith that comes from God. It's a faith whose object is Jesus Christ. It's from faith to faith. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, for it's by grace that you have been saved through faith. God doesn't command that men change their behavioral lifestyle and they'll be okay with Him. Hey, just reform your life a little bit. I know it's messed up. I know you're doing the wrong things. But listen, just fix your life a little bit. You know, grab yourself up by the bootstraps. Clean yourself up. You know, get out of that kind of ugliness that that we describe as debauchery. Get out of that. Start coming to church. Read those religious things. And everything will be good. No, God doesn't do that. He doesn't say any of that in order to be right with Him. He says, believe in the object of my gospel, my son. Everyone who turns from self and relies upon Jesus Christ, regardless of their national origin, regardless of their race, regardless of their family background, regardless of their lifestyle or whatever they've done, any kind of those things, Jesus says, come to me and believe. It doesn't matter. Paul says to the Jew first, also to the Greek. It doesn't matter who it is. That's just cover. He's just covering the whole gamut. His people, the religious people of the day, or those who are outside by the Jews considered to be okay with God. The Messiah has come to all men. And all who believe may be saved. But only those who truly believe will be saved. Why? Why is that the case? Because Paul says in verse 17, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Why is it the gospel saves? Why is it the good news concerning Jesus Christ has anything to do with saving us? Why why is that the power? Because in the gospel we hear about God's righteousness. In the gospel we see God's righteousness, because the righteousness of God is seen in Jesus Christ. His righteousness is on display. And through entrusting ourselves to the object of the gospel, God imparts His righteousness so that we are enveloped in His righteousness. You see, that's what makes the gospel of God more powerful than any other gospel. 
Because every other gospel simply says, believe in whatever you want. Believe in yourself. Believe in your works. Believe in your schedule of religious activity. Believe in whatever you want, but don't believe in that. There's no power in that. The power of the false gospel is simply this, the power to send you to hell. Every other gospel stands before God on its own self-made righteousness. Because there is no one righteous, it will never be able to endure the purity and holiness and judgment of a holy God. But through the gospel of God, revealed by faith, God imparts to those who believe His own righteousness. Some of us say, and how does God see me? Because I know my own heart. I mean, the sinful thoughts in my mind, sometimes I just seem to, I can't seem to have victory over those. I, I mean, God, how are you seeing me? I'll tell you how God sees you. God sees you through His righteousness. You see, God doesn't accept us based upon our works of quote-unquote sanctification on the process by which He is making us like Christ in activity, in action, in words and deeds and thoughts and all those things over time. God sees us as His righteousness in Christ. You cannot be justified by your works of sanctified activity. You are justified in Christ alone. His righteousness on you was a testimony to the reality of your justification before Him because the only righteousness God accepts is His own. Praise God that He gives us His righteousness by faith. And because of that, He can declare to us that we are His children because we are enveloped in Christ. Turn over for a moment to chapter 3, because Paul will say this again, chapter 3. Notice what he says in beginning in verse 21. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe But there's no distinction. Why? Because all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. You see? You cannot have salvation. You cannot have a a right standing before a holy God without going through the gospel. You cannot get there any other way. A gospel devoid of the righteousness of God, which is a gospel devoid of the righteousness of Christ alone, is no saving gospel at all. A gospel that says you have to pander to the needs of men and ensure that what I'm going to tell you is attractive to you is no saving gospel at all. All that is is a love for self, a love for self-preservation, a love to get you to like me and like myself and my reputation and who I am so that you might somehow in some way be happy to live like I live. I don't want you to live like I live. I want you to live like God lives. 
I want you to live like Christ. I don't want you to know me in hopes that in me you have some kind of salvation. There is none in us. It is in God alone. This has always been God's plan. This has always been the way God has it. Salvation was to come by grace through faith. And that is why Paul says in verse 17, but the righteous man shall live by faith. He's quoting Habakkuk. He's quoting the Old Testament prophets. Remember in chapter 3 of this book, he says it was witnessed by the law and the prophets, the gospel. Here he is quoting Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous will live by faith. Will live by faith. Not only did you entrust yourself by faith and, and, and trust the gospel, but the gospel works itself out in your life. You live by faith. You realize, and I'm sure Randy said this when he preached the other week, that Habakkuk's proclamation is given during the time when his countrymen, the other Jews, they were about to be invaded by a wicked Gentile nation. Here are the religious people, God's people about to be invaded by a nation, a people who who wanted nothing to do with God. The Chaldeans were ungodly pagan people. Spiritually no better than the Israelites. And yet God allows them, by His hand, to be His chastening instrument on God's people. Why? Because they had rejected His righteousness. They had rejected Him. And to reject God is to reject His righteousness. And they had set out to establish a righteousness of their own. So Habakkuk reminds his people, no, no. That's not how you get to know God. That's not how you are secure in the hands and arms of God. No, the righteous live by faith. Paul says the same thing. Continually relying upon the righteousness of God on our behalf in Christ. That's how you truly know you're a believer forever. So the true believer is made righteous by God's righteousness. And the true believer lives by faith all his life. You don't live by faith today and not by faith tomorrow. Well, we're not talking perfection, but we are talking about a, a, a trusting in God the whole time. Paul says, this is why I'm motivated to preach the gospel. Because nothing else will ever work. Nothing else will ever work. Why would I tell you something else? It won't help you. So one man said it. Quote, one, our task, our task as ambassadors of God is to point to that very narrow way. Christ himself is the one way to God. And to obscure that fact in any way is, in effect, to deny Christ and to disavow the gospel, unquote. I'll just say it this way. To preach anything else is, in fact, to verbally be ashamed of the gospel. 
be ashamed of the gospel. Is the path of the war for the gospel a lonely one at times? I think it can be. But nothing should motivate us more. Nothing should compel us to continue in the fight than the most powerful weapon of all, the gospel itself. Paul says it's the power of God. It's the only thing that can actually change lives. Nothing else. Not how you put it together. Not how you manufacture it. Not how you try to orchestrate so somebody might feel like they want to be around it. None of that. The only thing that changes lives is the power of the gospel. The only reason any of us are sitting here this morning and we actually know Jesus Christ not because we went to church our whole life, not because we grew up in a Christian place, not because we're in America. You know what? It's because somebody shared the gospel with you. And that broke through your sin-sick heart. God gave you faith. You believed. And your righteous, His righteousness is enveloping you. It's the only reason we're saved. And so for that reason, we ought to share the gospel with everybody. It is the power of God. We get to have a moment of communion here in just a little bit. Before we do, I want us to just bow in prayer, examine our own heart, think about the things that we've said this morning, the truth of the scriptures that we've heard, Maybe it is we're here and we don't really know that God that I've been talking about. Maybe we think we do. Maybe we played a game. Used words that sounded like belief. But our life really isn't any different. Maybe you've never believed the gospel. Maybe you're here and you have, but you just find that you're ashamed of it because your actions show that you don't really tell anybody about it. Fear is not of the Lord. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that as we come to our communion table together, that our hearts would be genuinely right before you, Lord, that the words of Paul would be a conviction upon us. We wouldn't just brush them aside and say, yeah, 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 I know, I know I'm ashamed, but, but nobody else knows that, so I'll just leave them go. Lord, you know. You know our heart. Examine us. For this time in our communion is very serious. Before you, you are a holy God. It cost you your life. Let us think about those things concerning our own sin and our own heart. And if we're wrong before you this morning, may we make that right before we ever take the elements of this communion table. That your name would not be blasphemed because of us. Even if nobody hears it, even if nobody sees it, you do. So Lord, we thank you for seeing our heart and knowing us in that way. Bless us as we apply these things to our own life by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.